Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, where we aspire to have real dialogues, not overproduced interviews with the amazing people who are making our world a different place. And uh, we're currently doing a survey of our listeners. If you want to participate, go to lockhead.com slash survey, and you can tell us exactly what you think. And recently, a listener told us, quote, Follow Your Different is a cross between a Metallica concert, a super cool dinner party conversation, and a design thinking class at Stanford. <laughs> I love that. And if that sounds like fun to you, then you're in the right place. On this episode, rock star cannabis venture capitalist, Dr. Cody Sanchez. We are sponsored by our good friends at Oracle NetSuite. You can learn how to build the foundation for growth of your company and always stay on top of the numbers that matter at netsuite.com slash different. That's netsuite.com slash different. I also want to tell you about my good friends at onelifefullylive.org. This is the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Our eighth annual conference is October 12th and 13th in beautiful Long Beach, California. Speakers include billionaire entrepreneur Jeff Hoffman, Dr. Caroline Colleen, who you just heard recently on this podcast, best-selling author uh, John Vroman, and our guest today, Cody Sanchez, and myself. So if you want to join us, I'd love to see you there. Go to the number one life fully lived dot org slash C Lockhead for more. Uh, now, Cody. She is a former mutual fund manager at Goldman Sachs and has consulted to companies like Facebook, Amazon, and Apple. She's an MBA from Georgetown, and she has a PhD from FGV in Brazil. And now she left an incredible career in sort of what you might think of as the traditional investment banking world and consulting world. And today she's a venture capitalist at Cresco Capital Partners, and she's focused on cannabis. That's right, Mary Jane. This is a fun, insightful conversation about living on the edge of investing in entrepreneurship in a new, exploding industry. Uh, you're also going to get an, a, a unique window into the life of an up-and-coming young gun rock star. Cody's also a speaker. She shares my disdain for the, for the Kardashians. And Cody's um, got an interesting social media game. She's got a great website. Her social channels are awesome. And she figures out a way to sort of be herself and build her, her position and her reputation online, but doing it in a very fun, thoughtful way uh, that I think is cool. Uh, one of my favorite quotes from Co Cody is she says, I like my stilettos like I like my margins. Hi. <laughs> You're going to love this gal. Go to lockhead.com to check out the show notes and the key takeaways from this episode. Now, hey ho, let's go. So, Cody, tell me about what you've been doing in Washington. Well, today has been kind of a day. Uh, we were just in uh, the Capitol uh, this morning, basically talking to a bunch of staffers about cannabis, asking them to sort of see it from a consumer's perspective, sure, but then also an investor's perspective, and which I am, and uh, and the employee and company perspective. So I was sitting there with, I don't know if you know the guys at Cushco. I know. 
Yeah, they've been really successful. You know, they'll do $150 million this year. They're pretty successful in the space and they're an ancillary service. They do packaging. Um, and the CEO is Yo, Hold on, I hate to interrupt you, but they're the packaging guys in the cannabis industry? Yeah. Okay, so I have a complaint. <laughs> bad, bad. They're doing way too good of a job. They're like the guys in the, remember in the compact disc business where you couldn't get to, into your fucking CDs because they were so... The oh, cannabis yeah. packaging now is ridiculous. You need a, a chainsaw and a sledgehammer to get the stuff open. Yeah, you're right. I remember particularly the, the tape along the top. That was the worst. Yes, that was the worst. Yes. Yeah. But no, I digress. Guys, if you think, <laughs> now, if you think it's bad here, you should go to Canada. I just went to one of the, my first dispensaries in Canada. And uh, there are five layers, five mandatory layers for every item that you buy. Like, talk about, you know. Yeah, not environmental. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, we own, own the thing. You really want to make sure that little Jimmy and Susie don't eat one of those gummies, don't they? <laughs> I, apparently. Well, they don't even let edibles happen. Well, edibles will happen in October for them. But no edibles. Well, there's no edibles right now in Canada? In Canada? Yes. Yeah, isn't that wild? Um, that is wild. No edibles and no brands. So um, not that much fun. All the packaging kind of looks like a prescription you don't want to take home. Wow, um, so gay marriage is legal, but you can't get edibles. I know. Those you wacky know? Canadians. Canadians. Yeah, but but yeah, today was cool. So I um. So you're meeting with legislators. Yeah, yeah, and and what I thought was interesting too is that so many of them don't know about cannabis, you know, and, and they know kind of what we used to think about as cannabis in the '70s or '80s. Um, but they really were still kind of getting up to speed on the fact that this is a multi-billion dollar industry right now. We got to figure something out. It, it doesn't make sense to leave it. Uh, a, is it schedule a, is that what they call it at the federal level? Schedule one. Schedule one, excuse me. And that, that means it's the equivalent of. Um, like heroin, methamphetamine. No, actually, her opioids are schedule three, I believe, because they do have medicinal use. So it's like methamphetamines and um, the, the categorization is something like drugs that have no medicinal benefit whatsoever, um, which, and they're highly addictive. Those are the two sort of caveats. Yeah, and the other thing I didn't quite think through, because I never thought about it, uh, I, I went for my uh, annual doctor's uh, um, checkup that I go to every five years um, recently. And um, my doctor, who's a spectacular gal, um, was explaining to me that because of the federal law, um, access to uh, funding for research is essentially zero. And so there's no federally funded research being done on the benefits, on the risks, on the problems, on the, you know, applications and use cases and all these things. Uh, and I, I guess I had never really thought about the fact that if the government isn't sponsoring research, then there's a big chunk of research that just can't happen. Yeah. I mean, I, I have a good friend, Jeff Chen, that runs, um, you'd like him, you should meet him. He runs uh, the UCLA Cannabis uh, Institute and he kind of came up with this and it's one of the only research organizations that's sponsored by a, a school or branded by a school but they have to get all third-party funds for it and can take no money from cannabis companies um, and so he's actually doing a little bit of research and this other um, Dr. Sue Sisley does quite a bit too but yeah I mean one of our initiatives is called Texas Dr. Texans who? Sue Sisley 
Seussiste. Yeah. Oh, the Dr. Seuss part on the front of it. I'm like, huh? Uh, so Dr. <laughs> Seuss is now um, lending their brand a pot. <laughs> yeah, and she does kind of have a, a Dr. Seuss name, doesn't she? The alliteration and all. Dr. Seussisley. Yeah. What's her first name? Uh, Sue. Sue's, Susan? I don't know, but she goes by Sue. Um, Sue Seussisley? Just Sue Sisley, like her oh, name's Susan Sue Sisley. Got it. There you go. Yeah. Louise. Took me a while. <laughs> I thought Sue Sisley was her last name. No, no, no. Terrible. Some of um, us, you know, th- there's evidence for why I didn't do well in school. Um, I highly doubt that. But she. Oh, I did not do well in school. Um, I bet uh, she did well in school. She did. She's yeah. So was she a doctor of? Well, she's a, um, a clinical researcher, uh, and she um, has done a lot of work with the Mayo Clinic, where she used to be gainfully employed until she wanted to start pursuing cannabis. So um, she's a, she is a licensed um, physician and a clinical researcher, but the clinical part's important for cannabis. So this is something I think a lot of people don't realize. You have a doc like this, who's got a, an extraordinary career working at the Mayo Clinic, who leaves to pursue a career in cannabis? Yep. I mean, I know that's an eye-opening thing, isn't it? I think so. And she was really one of the first. Um, I mean, I certainly wouldn't have thought I was going to be in cannabis if you would ask me that five years ago. I, yeah, I was. <laughs> I've been done sort of. It's probably <laughs> inappropriate, but you just kicked me under the table. I, I what I kind of want to say to you is like, how does a gal like you end up in a place like this? <laughs> No, because you have an investment banking background, do you not? I do, yeah. You were one of these young rock star iBanker types that was going to take over Morgan Stanley one day, right? (laughs) Yeah, I got tired of the suits, basically. Um, Yeah, no, I did the whole Goldman Sachs in, you know, 2008. That was a ride. Um, And, you know, State Street, Vanguard, all the big firms. But um, I won... I think after a while, everybody has to graduate or everybody should graduate from that realm and, and go do something in the world. So I was feeling like it was time. And then on so top of that... You didn't see a path to being a senior partner in 25 years at Goldman or something like that? Oh, gosh. No, no, no. I mean, I would like to think that I certainly could have if I wanted to. Um, you know, I was an MD at my last firm before I left. So that's a partner role. But um, it... Well, one... I think in this day and age, you don't get too many shots at a generational wealth creation event. So um, I wrote a really nice uptick in emerging markets, which was the area that I specialized in towards the end of it. And then, um, you know, that market was starting to sort of get less interesting, more stabilized in the the sector sector that I was in. And I just thought um, when I started investing in cannabis, thought it was interesting, but I did it quietly and privately. So I didn't give my mom a heart attack. And then once I started seeing the actual numbers that we were making, uh, I was interested. And then I got my conscience comfortable with it because my dude is um, special operations and military active duty. And uh, we do a ton of, of nonprofit stuff with vets. And, you know, it doesn't take long for you to be around a couple of vets and see them come back from war and have PTSD or TBI and you get them on opioids and onto cannabis and change a couple lives. And it's kind of, uh, it's contagious at that point.
No, there's, sorry, there, there's a lot there you just said, Cody. At the beginning, I was trying to jot it down as you said it. Did you say generational wealth creation event? That's what I believe, yep. Why is cannabis a generational wealth? I mean, that, that phrase or phrases like that, uh, and you and I are uh, of slightly different generations, <laughs> but... We heard things along those lines in the 90s when the internet, you know, when I think Netscape went public in 94. And I mean, at that time, there was a lot of that. And you had guys like John Doerr, Kleiner Perkins saying, this is the largest legal wealth creation event in history. And, you know, you had language like that. So it's been since then that I've really heard people declare at that level that this is what's going on. So why do you say that? that? you know, in my lifetime, this is akin to the internet. Yeah, I think, now would I be so presumptuous to say it's akin to the internet? I'm not sure about that. Um, what I think is interesting and, and definitely a generational wealth creation event is um, like there's sort of five prongs to it. One is typically these, in, you know, that's in new industries, you typically have no regulation, right? Because regulators haven't caught up. They don't know how to regulate it. So this industry, we have over-regulation, we have hyper-regulation of an industry. We have massive pent-up demand because, you know, people have been, cannabis isn't new, you know, people have been doing this for some time, um, but they didn't have access to it, right? So we don't have to- You're not not trying to out me, are you? (laughs) (laughs) You're in California, you're safe. (laughs) Um, But they, you know, people have been using this product for, for millennia, really, um, so we don't have to go out and create a market and tell people why to use the internet, for instance. Um, then, then the third item is the use cases for it are pretty prolific. I mean, there's like something like 40,000 different ways people can utilize the cannabis and hemp plants. Um, and then fourth is audience expansion. So for instance, you know, typically we think of, of marijuana smokers. And when I thought about it in the beginning, I never liked it. Like I remember trying it back in the day. I went to sleep. Like it just wasn't my thing. But um, you did inhale. <laughs> I did. What was the response? Uh, that that was the point, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so, um, so yeah. So, uh, but now. But my, you were in a pothead. No, no, no. And, and I'm not saying anything wrong with that. I just, it wasn't, you know, I like a, a glass of red wine. That's my vice or several or a bottle, but the cannabis plant was really not my deal. Um, And then now we have like my 93 year old grandmother uh, just moved into assisted living. And I, you know, went and took her to the dispensary in Arizona for her to get uh, stuff for her arthritis. So the audience is expanding massively. And then this CBD thing is going mental, like few things we've ever seen, right? They're they're putting CBD in everything now, aren't they? Yeah. And I do think, you know, I don't think any of this is a cure for everything or some sort of panacea. So I'd be, I'd be very cautious about, you know, putting CBD in everything and thinking I can go sell a latte for $45 because it has CBD in it at Erewhon, you know, that's probably not going to be long-term. Um, but I mean, gosh, for pets, for anxiety, there certainly seemed to be early uh, research that shows CBD does does work in many instances. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so um, and so here you are. You're not at Goldman Sachs. You have your own uh, pot venture fund. Is that is that how I should think of it? 
Yeah, you know, I can't say I use the word pot and uh, often, but uh, I think it's the same, same. Yeah, so we, there's a group of six of us partners. Um, the the gentleman who founded it, I invested and helped seed his fund back in 2014. Um, we were longtime friends. He was like the most conservative, straight and narrow Dallas type that you could have in Texas. So this and, this was wasn't Cheech Marin's brother. <laughs> no, but I think they have something going on in this space too. Um, there's a lot of uh, of those old faces popping up. Um, I read an article. I want to say it was in Rolling Stone, but I, that might be wrong. Um, with um, with Cheech Marin and. Apparently, he is making an absolute killing with Cheech-branded products of all types. And like every implementation of cannabis you could imagine. And and he ended the article by saying that essentially everything great in his life has come from weed. (laughs) Oh, gosh. That, you know, I mean, I was just at a conference. He spoke right before me. Uh, He's out there. Jay and Silent Bob, like Silent Bob from that show has... Oh, no uh, kidding. Yeah, he has a he has a cannabis company as well. So there's certainly those. And Mike Tyson um, is in the pot business, is he not? He is. I don't know exactly what he's doing, but there's the host. I mean, one hand you've got Mike Tyson. The other hand, you've got Martha Stewart. So it's, you know, it's a... Martha Stewart's in the pot business now too? Yeah, she has a CBD brand. Um, wow, of course she does. Yeah, exactly. I just got to tell you, Cody, just to take a step back for a second. Uh, as a guy that grew up when I did, if you had told me that a, a character like Martha Stewart would have a pot product, even if it's non-psychoactive, you know, when I was 14 years old, I, like when I was 14 years old, you had to have some shit handled to get a, hand, get a, a hold of drugs, right? You needed to have that weirder friend and that weirder friend had a super weirder friend who had a super sketchy friend who had a terrifying friend, right? That was sort of what you needed to have set up and the whole chain sort of needed to work. You're exactly right. No longer. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a completely different ballgame. I think that's part of the reason why, you know, when I was at the Capitol today, why everybody has to, to get a little bit past that. Um, obviously, like Gen, Gen Z, the generation after me, um, they've never thought of it that way because... Cannabis has been legal in California for what, 20 years now, basically, um, in some capacity. And so that's kind of going away. you yourself uh, a millennial? Uh, I mean, I am one, so I, yeah. I better accept the, the terminology. But um, I hope You're not I your like average millennial. You're certainly not a stereotypical millennial, best I can tell, Cody Sanchez. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of bad stereotypes there. Uh, um, I'm curious. Um, in your conversations with legislators, do, do the topics of sort of what's gone down in Switzerland and what's gone down in Portugal, um, where they've gone, you know, even more extreme in terms of drug legalization, do you get that far or is it an Amsterdam discussion or like what, what are the sort of models that are looked at to have a conversation around not just educating them on cannabis itself, but sort of the societal impact of, taking a more, uh, I don't know, open stance on this stuff. Sure. Yeah. No, I mean, we're not even close to talking about Switzerland or or Portugal. Um, Unfortunately, it's really tactical. So, you know, there's something called 
um, you know, the SAFE Act, which is the Banking Act, basically allowing cannabis companies to have access to capital, that's on the table. Or we're talking about the States Act, essentially, that eventually if there's enough states that come on board and legalize cannabis, it could be federally legal. Um, and there's a little bit of talk about descheduling, what would happen there. There's definitely talk about the FDA coming in and regulating some of these CBD products and hemp products. Um, so all of that's there. But the, the idea of, it has not really been driven thus far by the idea of, look at what happens in society when we deregulate and decriminalize and instead spend that on education and rehabilitation. That hasn't come up, which I think is, is a bummer, but you know, I try to meet people where they are. So if we can make these small little steps, I'll take it. Yeah. And so do you anticipate a, a time where uh, marijuana is federally legal in the United States? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's only a matter of time. I mean, the cat's out of the bag now. Um, and would you, just, would you have a best guess, Cody, as to when that might be? I don't think this year. There's some people predicting this year. I think we're, I think we've got a few years. I think probably in the next three to five years we're oh, talking wow. about. So definitely in the next decade. I think so. Yeah. Yep. Um, I don't know how else they keep managing all of these taxes that they're going to have um, coming in. And I think eventually there's going to be enough pushback where, where they're going to have to federally legalize. But, you know, you never know. We, we can see what happens in one change of, of administration one way or the other. So, so who has really any idea? And do you know off the top of your head, Cody, what the size of the legal uh, cannabis industry is in the United States now? Yeah, it's $14 billion, the legal industry. And it's about 18 or 19 globally. So it's not small. And especially if you care, compare that to in 2007, uh, it was something like $3 billion. Wow. So you've seen a massive ramp up. Um, and, and I think that's just going to continue. Yeah. And um, um, what are the things that you look to invest in? I mean, you're, you're in the pioneer days here. Uh, and so how do you think about making wise investments? Uh, and, and how does the fact that the industry is in this weird legal spot, you know, your job as a VC has got to be a lot different than, you know, the VCs of the internet era that I would be used to, or the VCs of now the cloud uh, generation and so forth. Because, well, well, I certainly know VCs who invested in things that, sat on the line of being legal, you know, Airbnb and Uber and Lyft. I know the investors in Airbnb and the investors in Lyft reasonably well. And those things sort of sat on the line, but there was nothing that would like cause you to go to a federal prison for many decades <laughs> that I, at least that I was familiar with investing in. And so sort of help me with not just a, the kinds of companies you look for and the criteria of those companies, but also how those decisions sit inside this nebulous spot you're in yeah well um obviously that was something that i thought about a lot in 2014 when i was first investing um and then we just got to a place where um we thought that the calculated risk and and myself in particular i thought the calculated risk of investing in this space um versus what could actually happen um, was was intelligent, and I couldn't see a world in which complete legalization rollback happens, or even more criminalization 
you know, it gets reinstigated um, on this space in a way that would go after the entire uh, investable market. I mean, if, if you think about the names in cannabis right now, you have Peter, Peter Thiel, right? So he's an investor and privateer, one of the biggest uh, groups out there. You've got John Boehner sits on the board. So former Speaker of the House sits on the board of one of my portfolio companies, Acreage. You know, you've got the two former CMOs from Apple and Facebook uh, now run cannabis companies. Um, and you've got a slew of smaller politicians and Tiger Global and, um, you know, Cooperman and, and all of these top hedge fund people. I kind of thought, one, well, I guess they'll go after them first because Cody's certainly not as big as those guys are. And two, um, you know, these are people who are highly, highly tapped into what's happening from a political standpoint. So that got me pretty comfortable. Um, but I think the, the thing that I was more nervous about is kind of what you said, which is one, can we invest in a way that where we can invest privately at good valuations that aren't based on price speculation? You know, I don't want to, I always get freaked out when people forget the fact that there was a tulip mania and there was a tech bubble and there was a Bitcoin bubble. I mean, nobody's driving Lamborghinis and blazed with Bitcoin any longer. Right. So, um, that's what I worry about are the public markets and investors getting really frothy and excited about the public markets and throwing all of their, you know, mom's IRA money, uh, into stocks that they don't understand. And so what I was really concerned about is don't think they're going to come after us legally. It's just my opinion. I'm not an attorney, but I do think that you got to be smart on how you invest private versus public. And so once I figured out, Oh, we could actually do that. We can do a little bit more intense than VC investing than I've done previously. You got to do a ton of due diligence, which just means like a lot of me going to visit all of these, um, you know, sites, do background checks on the actual employees, do background checks on the founders, do background checks on the investors. It's relatively intense uh, due diligence. And, but on the private side, I can invest at three to five times uh, EBITDA. So I can invest it on three to five times their real money that they've already done instead of on the public markets. Some of these guys have valuations of like 50 to 200 times what they might do next year. Um, and so that got me pretty comfortable, but it took, took three years of me sitting on the Cresco board before I made the, the move. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So you didn't just uh, roll a fatty and decide to do this. <laughs> no, if I did that, I'd still be sleeping. Like that wouldn't even, that wouldn't help. <laughs> you know, the interesting thing, uh, I, I guess a lot of people have sort of Cheech and Chong like um, uh, sort of images of what uh, cannabis executives are like. But, you know, um, having had um, Dennis O'Malley on the podcast and having known him for so long, I mean, I've known him for, I don't know, maybe not quite, yeah, I bet it's close to 15 years, right? And and he was, I mean, if you think about sort of uh, starch white button-down shirt, blue blazer, uh, you know, pleated khakis, like a guy that looks like he works for IBM because Gartner hired that type of individual, right? That was Dennis. And to think that he's the CEO of, you know, the number one pot company uh, in California today is just, and one of the things he said to me, Cody, was they are recruiting from tech and how easy it is to get people over from tech and, and that people in tech recognize this sort of uh, industry that is taking shape 
because we've seen it before. I, I just found that that was an interesting parallel. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it reminds me, don't you remember when investment banking used to be cool? You know, I remember like, yeah. When I, yeah, the I like, bankers that I knew in the tech world were some of the coolest people of all time. Yeah. I mean, there was innovation happening there and that was one of the top jobs to go do. And then, you know, you kind of talk to kids now coming out of school and nobody is saying, I want to go work, you know, as an iBanker when they can go wear flip-flops and, you know, and surf shorts and go work at Apple or Facebook. And I, and then I, and I see the same thing now in cannabis. I see a lot of people still interested in tech, but also tech has become super crowded um, and, you know, a lot of the big companies are, um, becoming more traditional, right? They're not the upstarts maybe as much as they used to be. Uh, and so now I think cannabis is shaking it up a little bit, but I mean, I would be very remiss if I didn't say that tech plays a huge part in cannabis too. And we've invested in some companies that are innovating there. So I don't think that will ever go away. It feels like I get an email, if not every week, maybe every other week from some company that's going to be the, you know, XYZ of this niche in providing technology to cannabis companies, whether it's their, you know, we're going to be the, the net suite of cannabis. They're going to be the ERP like system, or they've got some IOT thing that connects the supply chain to the blockchain to the like, just, I get this email all the time at this sort of intersection of the cannabis sort of supply, you know, people who are wanting to sell the picks and shovels, so to speak, yeah. from a technology perspective to the cannabis industry. Yeah. Well, I mean, my response to that is always like, it's, you know, who's going to be the Oracle of cannabis? Oracle. Like that's who, because this is going to eventually get legalized. And, you know, unless you have a really actually different tech that's really core to the business that would actually be additive to another one. And you know, tech way more than I do. There's a, a gentleman on our team who specializes in tech and it's certainly not me. Um, but I, I can't get on board with these band-aid solutions. You know, if I'm going to invest in a tech company or a biotech company, which we do a lot of, it's not because it's a band-aid solution for the interim. It's because this is a, something really revolutionary. What do you think? Um, you know, I think there's a very good chance Oracle is the Oracle of pot. I think that's probably right. Um, and here's what I think the mega change is going on right now. And as this thing plays out, it's going to have huge ramifications in cannabis, just like I think it is going to be in every other drug and every other food, um, which is, I think one of the seminal shifts going on right now, Cody, is heretofore data has largely been a record of things that happen. So we capture data and we store it so that we can go back to it and report on it and analyze it. Um, you know, an accounting system is a simple example, but lots of uh, transaction systems are like that. Right. Um, and of course now, uh, if you think about a credit card or any kind of a payment platform, there's a real time thing that happens. So in that sense, data is being used to make something happen. You have to check your credit. You have to know your customer in good stand, you know, that kind of stuff. So I think the big change we're going to see is data going from primarily a record of what happened to being the thing that makes things happen. Mm. And so I think over time in farming, in drug manufacturing, in food manufacturing, in any kind of a logistics supply chain, I think we're just going to see 
more and more sensors, more and more cameras, more and more robots, more and more, so more and more IoT. And the smartification will just continue and continue and continue and the machine learning and so forth and so on. And so I just think we're going to have data triggering things in the supply chain, um, including in farming, that, um, you know, we're only beginning to imagine now. And I have some friends working in some of these areas. And so it's, it's you know, as a guy who remembers very clearly the first time I heard about IoT before we even had a word for it, but when it became clear to me that, oh, the internet's moving into the world and is being installed in shit, you know, we didn't even know how to talk about it, right? But sort of the very early inclinations of IoT and then, and then when blockchain comes behind it, you're like, oh, okay, so then you can record everything and build a system of trust and, and look, we'll see how it all plays out. But all that shit is very, very fascinating. And as it plays out, I think it's going to have implications in many places. And I think in an industry like cannabis, to your point, that's so regulated. And ultimately, you want to be able to say, hey, I bought this cookie and it was made with these components and it was made in this place by these people. And the source flower was this and it got tested and it had that and it never got sprayed with bullshit and it, and, and, and just like we want integrity in the food supply or integrity in what, you know, Bristol-Myers Squibb brings to market, right? So I think as the technology allows that to happen, I don't know, and then I'm going to stop for your reaction. I think those things are going to professionalize cannabis um, probably in a super powerful, probably super positive way, but I'll stop and get your reaction. Oh, I couldn't agree more, especially, you know, I've, I have a, a sneaking suspicion as well that because cannabis is so highly rec uh, regulated, we have these sealed seed to sale tracking systems that are mandatory in a lot of them, testing or and showcasing everything that you just talked about in the supply chain. I, I'm interested to see what the reverse applications could be. So if cannabis does all of this, does all the costs associated with it because we're a high margin business, and then we make it very easy for you to track every single instance of where your food's been, how could that actually help the rest of the food industry and, and nutraceuticals and, you know, um, cosmetics, which would be huge for me because I am a big proponent of, you know, locally farmed, sourced, organic. Um, and potentially, I think one of the things in cannabis that I'd love to see evolve is, you know, we're doing a massive amount of greenhouses and indoor grow in cannabis. And, you know, that's because you have to grow it in your state. You can't cross state lines. Canada, I mean, think about this. We have a tundra in Canada. It's basically the Arctic, right? And what are we doing? We're growing a subtropical plant in giant greenhouses that are, you know, hundreds of thousands of square feet, it, it, which are super energy intensive to run. Um, I think long term, that's going to look a little ridiculous. Uh, but, but we'll see. You mean we and, should grow the bananas where the bananas grow and grow the tomatoes where the tomatoes grow and <laughs> the blueberries and, 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 and? Yeah, um, I do. And, and, or, I mean, I don't know, maybe biosynthesis, you know, could, could you eventually actually take algae or yeast or other things and grow some of the things inside of a cannabis plant? Um, and I don't think that'll be right for everything, but I think it will be less energy intensive, even though we're not sure still looks like the flower has this such a cool name too, an entourage effect, you know, basically that all the different things inside of the cannabis plants called cannabinoids um, play together in a way that is much more powerful than any extract um, or anything synthetically derived. 
Um, so it's kind of cool that, that this is maybe one industry where it'll be a little bit hard for pharma to take a real foothold because their whole game is isolates. You know, it's pulling out one unique thing, coming together with their own combination of these unique isolates and then creating something that's expensive to sell. Um, and cannabis, the flower is actually oftentimes the best thing you can, you can do. So does that mean that maybe cannabis as it matures as an overall industry and all these sub niches of various different components of the va- the value chain, as well as the products and so forth. I mean, there's, this is the other fun thing that, you know, Dennis shared with me that, that warmed my heart, right? There's this explosion of category design and niches taking place in cannabis. And, you know, when he told me that my books are popular in the industry, I thought, isn't that fun? But oh, yeah. <laughs> anyways, uh, that, that said, as this thing sort of um, plays out, is, is what you're saying, maybe, Cody, that even with big players coming in, there's a component of this industry over time that will remain more craft-like because of that? Is that what I can take from that? Or what should I take from what you I certainly say? think so. You know, and I never know where idealism meets rationality here, because I do think that that would be an industry I would prefer. But we actually have seen that the alcohol industry, for instance, went through, you know, a massive uh, period of consolidation and still has that, but then has really a huge smattering of, of craft um, producers across different beverage types. So I think we'll have that in cannabis. And also the one good thing, not one, there's a couple good things about um, the fact that it's, it's federally illegal is that states are protected. So, you know, all of these states have individual companies and brands within the, the individual states because they can't cross state lines. So that gives them a longer time to incubate and I think prepare for big players coming in. Yes, that was something that Dennis also mentioned. The other analogy as you were talking, it sort of triggered an idea in my head. This craft thing also, of course, has gone down in coffee. And, oh, yeah. You know, like I'm, I'm buddies with the Verve uh, founders here in Santa Cruz and they are sort of the last major independent, uh, West coast craft player. Um, but you know, you had that huge explosion. And so it's interesting. You see this massive thing take off with Starbucks and you know, it's kind of like that for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction, right? Then all of a sudden, and it's the same thing to your point on the breweries or in the alcohol companies, you know, we have Budweiser and Coors Molson or whatever the fuck they're called and all this stuff. And then all of a sudden, you know, you get arrogant bastard and Lagunitas and all these amazing craft brews show back up again. Yeah. Very interesting. Totally. Now I I wanted to switch. Sorry, go ahead. Oh yeah. No, the only thing I was going to add is that I think humans, we always chase novelty, you know, you could say that in good ways or bad ways for any type of, of pursuit that we, um, have interest in, we, we're always looking for the next new thing. So I think inherent in that is, is the fact that big, huge behemoth businesses don't stick around forever, is that they're not coming up with the next new thing. We get accustomed to them, then we get a little bored, then we get a little, they get a little complacent, and then the new guy steps in. So I don't worry as much about all the big guys eviscerating the cannabis small industry. Hmm, interesting. And do you think uh, it'll be like one of the things I think we've learned in, in tech venture capital uh, in the sort of 30 plus years I've been around is that, um, I think for the most part, it is a craft business by definition, venture capital in the tech world. I don't know about movies or, you know, steel. I have no fucking idea, but in the tech world, 
it seems that it's very hard to build a scalable um, venture fund. Now, there are some firms that have grown much bigger than I think a lot of people thought they would that seem to have been able to build a culture and, and, and recruit and train and develop people and have multiple locations and have success. So I'm not saying it's like super crafty per se, but it's got a real craft element to it. Um, do you think that's, do you think that's true in, in, in your world as well in terms of VCs in the cannabis world? Yeah. I mean, I think when I was, when we were talking forever ago and I was looking at, you know, which fund would I want to go into in the PE or VC space? You know, I remember one of the things you said to me and I don't even, your book, I guess, yeah, it had to be out by then, but, um, was, this idea of, you know, you've got to find some sort of venture fund that has a protective moat or a different story. And I don't know if you use the word niche, niche down, but I think that is part of the thing is in venture. I do think you have to, I do think it lends itself to, to craft. Um, and even more so, I think if you're not one of the biggest guys in venture right now, of which there's very few, uh, you're not getting the best deal flow if you're a broad-based generalist venture or private equity fund. You're just not. You're getting priced out and everybody else is eating your cake. So the the guys that I've seen be successful, they had to completely um, re-engage their business in a way and reimagine it where they have an extreme niche. And like, you know, for instance, I have a, a friend that runs a real estate fund um, that is, he essentially... Um, created a fund where his LPs, his investors were the biggest players in real estate. So it was like Starwood hotels and um, CBRE and, you know, Home Depot. So he had these guys as sort of what he called kingmakers. And then he had all these real estate or what he would call built world startups. Um, and, uh, and the company's called fifth wall, but it was anything that was for the built world. These guys would be able to see early if this would happen in real estate, because you need a lot of money for that to essentially work. And Brendan ended up having like, you know, four huge exits fast because he had this niche that was totally different, totally unique. And he doubled down and capitalized on it. And I think that's what we're trying to do in cannabis too, is build our own little entourage effect inside of our fund. Isn't that catchy? Um, where we essentially can create kingmakers um, by being even a little bit more like a merchant bank on the back end um, than just a straight up, I write a check. I don't do any of the term sheet changes. You know, I'm not doing additional warrants. Like we, I think we have to be more creative these days to be successful. Interesting. Now I'd like to ask a couple uh, questions about you if I could. Of course. So, um, you know, I don't know why here, but I'm going to start here. Um, <laughs> you, you're uh, fairly present on social media. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so. Yep. And so you, you're this person who has this very serious, no bullshit, big time career. And yet you're a person who's also fairly visible on social media. and. Uh, I think for some of us, myself included, finding sort of um, the right place to stand on that stuff is challenging because now because of social media, our professional life and our personal life gets, gets munged, right? And so you're this person 
who's visible on social media doing things professionally and personally, and somehow you make it work. And so I'm just curious how you think about your sort of social media self. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. It's, don't get me wrong. I mean, I got a lot of pushback on it in the beginning. Um, but I remember I wasn't on social media at all. Um, I, uh, a few years ago, I, I wasn't on social media. I didn't do any of that. And the reason is that um, I thought it was kind of a waste of time, to be honest. So I was like, why would you go on social media every day? You just watch other people's stuff. It felt like reality TV to me. And so I didn't want, I don't watch reality TV and, and, you know, everybody, I've, I've watched like some real housewives before and, and had, a, had a chuckle, but I, it's just not my, my deal. Um, and so I sort of felt like that about social media. And then one of my friends said to me, like, if you're not on it, um, how can you judge it essentially? And so I did a challenge and this is actually with another entrepreneur in the space who was like, yeah, just post for 30 days and see what happens. So anyway, so then I got kind of into it. I was posting and messing around. And what I realized is I think social media is a great way for you to um, get access to people that you might not otherwise. And so I don't really want to be famous at all. That does I don't have any interest in that, but I want, when I call somebody or email them, I want them to take my meeting I want them to know who I am at least enough so that they'll engage with me on that. And I want to have a big enough sphere and a little bit of heft behind it. So if say one of my portfolio companies wants to do something, then I can connect them the right way. Or if, you know, I don't know if I need to get in touch with somebody to get on CNBC because that's going to help us somehow I can do it. And I feel like when social media is done in a way that's relatively thoughtful, um, you can do that. The only problem is you do have to add some crazy to it and a little bit of, you know, personality um, because social media is inherently kind of uh, in your face. So I'm not sure I figured it out and I've certainly gotten pushback. And I think people question how serious you are if you, if you put your personality on the web. Um, but at some point I just said, fuck it. Uh, I think that, that the opportunity is worth more than whatever downside risk there might be to my ego for somebody not liking posts. Well, as somebody who feels like I have no fucking clue what I'm doing, I really admire what you do because I think you've found some way to be a human being and show pictures of yourself with your friends on a hike or I don't know what the fuck. And then at the same time, <laughs> show pictures of you, you know, meeting with our lawmakers and, and kind of everything in between yoga poses. And of course, my favorite of all time is your kill the Kardashians t-shirt. <laughs> I know it's not PC at all, but you know, from my standpoint too, this is where I get a little bit like edgy about it, which is that I think it's ridiculous that we think if you're going to be a major VC or PE or really successful at something, you, you have to look a certain way and you have to do certain things. And, and in finance, that was so rampant. You know, I remember one of my first days at Goldman, I'm a, I'm a Latina. So I was wearing like bright colors or something. And I remember my manager pointed me in and be like, at Goldman, we wear blue, gray, black, and cufflinks. And I'm like, wow, well, cufflinks are going to be an issue for me, but I guess the others I can do. And so I just don't like that. It's not my personality. And I think most people aren't like that either. Nobody's one dimensional. Inherently, people are more interesting than you give them credit for. And I think we should be able to put our, our little bit of that weird hat on and put it out there so that other people realize, hey, you can be successful. You can do good things, but also you cannot be uh, super boring. 
Yeah. And it's interesting because how I knew you were doing a great job is I really know you from a couple of the interactions we've had, but not many, right? A, a few. Now, over a period of time, so I've, I, the fun part for me is, you know, when I met you, you were an up-and-comer, and now you're an up-and-comer with, like, you know, turbocharged uh, <laughs> engines going, you know? So I've seen you go oh, from, like, here to, like, boom, right? So that, that's fun. Uh, I know you through Tim Road because every time I see Tim, he finds a reason to tell me about what, what something you're doing and why he loves you and thinks you're awesome. He's so great. Uh, and then also, but like, I get a sense of who you are. There's a, uh, through social media. And the thing that's interesting about you is uh, it seems like you're really sharing yourself. Like you're not one of these sort of, uh, you know, there's just so many of these Kardashian like people who are just like, all they're doing is essentially masturbating on, on Snapchat. Right. And it's just, it's so fucking painful. I totally agree. Well, I, yeah, I don't do the filters or anything. That's one of my personal. I've never seen like cat ears or anything. (laughs) No, God, no. I mean, more power to you. But um, I just think, you know, somebody told me that there's an entire industry that is people getting surgery to look like their social media accounts when they have filters on it. I thought, oh my God, it's horrifying. If I ever had a kid and they thought that she had to look like that all the time, that can't be healthy for anybody. So yeah, I try to not share that, but don't get me wrong. I mean, I think anytime you're out there socially, um, you can get caught up in it super easy. I mean, I had a girlfriend start a new business online um, and she started posting things and I kind of had to sit her down and be like, Hey, this is not you at all. Like what's going on here? And she's like, I know I didn't, you know, I wasn't getting likes. So then I did things that got likes. And this is a wildly successful, very smart, very good human falling into this thing, which, you know, when Sean Parker was talking about Facebook back in the day, he said, yeah, we want to create something that as many people as possible get addicted to as continuously as possible. I'm butchering this exact words, but you know, that was the impetus for it. So I think we're crazy if we don't realize that's going to be inherent in it. You got to take time off of it. You shouldn't go crazy and like, take it easy on yourself. It really doesn't matter if people like you or not, because all the, you know, who would you rather be? Well, maybe this is bad for all audiences, but you know, Kim Kardashian is, I don't know, 50, 60, however million followers on Instagram. And then if you look at Sheryl Sandberg or Mark Zuckerberg, or, you know, how, how many followers do they have? Do they even have a million? I highly doubt it, but arguably who's more powerful, who has more wealth, who has more access, um, who seems to have a better family life and fewer divorces. Um, so I don't know. It seems to me like there's a negative correlation between massive followers and success. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, who was it? Um, what was her name now? She was a, a big time, uh, TV star in the eighties and nineties on Melrose place. And she was on some other shows like that, a blonde gal. Is that like Tori Spelling? Well, there's oh. her, but what was the older one? She was, she'd like was dated the Motley Crue guys and she was the, oh. the it gal for a long time. Yeah. I anyway, don't remember her name, but I can her name. Her she was, she was yep. anyway, you know, I, I saw <laughs> story about her. I hate to laugh. It's terrible. She's, she's been in and out of, fucking rehab over 50 times it's oh like, my gosh wow this is not a recipe for a happy life i'm just no, checking cheryl sandberg here let's see she's got on instagram yeah she's got five hundred thousand followers 
Yeah. I mean, and you know, a direct Let's see how many our friend right? Kim has. First of all, when you type in Kim in the search bar in Instagram, guess who pops up? Holy fucking fuck. Guess how many followers Kim Kardashian has? So I'm guessing it's more than 50 million. 139 million followers. Oh my God, it's half of the US population. She's got 140 fucking million followers on Instagram. I just, I don't get it to be honest. You know what? Somebody did say something kind of good that I guess she's done, which is like uh, change maybe people's perception uh, of body types. She's more curvy. So I have a friend that's like, hey, I appreciate it. I'm a curvy girl. I'll never be really, really skinny. It's just how I'm built. So she made that cool. All right. You know, and you can't, you can't argue. I'll I'll bless her for that. Because I I think curvy girls are beautiful, but I think women are beautiful, period. But the other question I wanted to ask you is, you know, um, speaking of you being a woman, (laughs) (laughs) you know, you've had a lot of success early. Do you ever sort of reflect and go like, hey, I'm kind of kind of crushing it over here? Do you know you're crushing it? I don't know. No, I think, you know, I'm sure it's similar to you. I, uh, I'm pretty forward focused. So that's one of my, my biggest downsides is that I do not really focus well on the idea that everything that I've accomplished is enough. You know, and I, and I wish I did, but I'm really bad at that. So I need some advice if you have any way to do that. But um, I I think there's so much more to be done, and and I get a little idealistic with it, which is in the future I really am curious to see what can be the positive impact that I could potentially have in whatever business we build, especially in this cannabis business. I think cannabis would have huge implications for the environment, for decriminalization, um, for opioid addiction. So I don't think I'm going to be very happy until it's not just my employees, my team, you know, our companies that have done well, but until we've done something ridiculous. And I don't know what that is yet, but I'm open to suggestions if people have any ideas in cannabis, but I would like to make a massive impact then, you know, maybe take a break, write a book, do some yoga. I don't, I don't know what you do once you <laughs> calm down a little bit on that. Yeah, that's what you do. You, you, you take some Pilates classes, you learn some martial arts, you go on some surf trips. Um, that's what you do. But so here's the thing. Maybe, maybe let, let me ask it this way. Um, I think there's a lot of young people, you know, people who are maybe 10, 15 years behind you who would look at you and and sort of, um, your level of success might look very daunting to them, like a mountain that doesn't feel that climbable. And so, you know, what would you say to a young person who's 10 or 15 years behind you and looks at you and, you know, you seem like you've got everything going on and, you know, you seem like the, the fucking perfect human. And so what, what would you share with them? Oh, gosh. Well, first of all, I'd say there's definitely no perfection um, there at all. I think the the amazing thing I would say is um, I keep meeting people that have achieved great things and realizing we are all so massively human um, and and wildly flawed, maybe even more so the people at the top. We're all kind of nuts, and I'm not even anywhere near that. Um, so I would say, first of all, like, don't count yourself out of any game you want to go after early or based on the fact that you might not think you're enough. I really haven't ever met anybody um, that can't achieve what they want to achieve. It's usually just 
don't be lazy. Um, and you know, the, the greatest thing about almost anything in, in, I think in success today is as long as you don't want to go be an NBA player and you're, you know, four foot two and a woman, you know, that might not work out so well for you, but almost anything you want to go after, if you grind really hard at it, if you're super curious about it, if you figure out how to get yourself around the right people who can get you to that goal. And today it doesn't have to be your friends and family. It can be using your social media. It can be using your LinkedIn. It can be using your, you know, um, email cold reach out. So you grind, you get curious and you surround yourself with the right people. You can go after just about whatever you want. Um, but I would say typically what I see that makes me so sad, and I'm sure you get this too, like when people reach out to you, Chris, and they're like, Hey, I want, I want to be like you, you know, how do I, how do I do what you've done? And then maybe you give them something, right? Like sometimes in the beginning I would do more like, okay, if you want to do that, read this book and this book and come back to me and ask me your, your, tell me your questions on that. Or like write up an idea on this or whatever and tell me your questions about that. How many people actually do it? zero you know they, they never come back and say and if they ever did I like hired them I was like what you're a unicorn come work for me I don't know how um but that's the part that kills me is like we're all just in our own way for whatever reason so don't be in your own way yes and you should write a book because what you just said was true for me until I wrote my first book really yeah the books changed it and now uh, because, and look, I, this is going to sound however it's going to sound, but it happens to be true. The vast majority I, of people I talk to today who want advice from me have read at least one of my books. And so what that means is we start on the same page. And then another percentage of them have listened to a bunch of my podcasts and in some, in many cases, both. And so what has changed is um, they're already in a relationship with me. So it's easy for me to get into a relationship with them, point A and point B, if it's particularly if it's around category design, we now share the lens. Without the lens, it took me a very long time to try to explain sort of where I was coming from, what my perspective, what my point of view was. Now, if you read the book, you have the lens and now we're playing with the lens as opposed to, oh, fuck, you don't even know what, where I'm, what I'm, how I'm even approaching this thing, right? And so that changed everything in terms of my interaction with people who are asking for advice. Um, they know me and they at least understand the lens and we can kind of play with the lens together. Um, yeah, and and so you should write a book, work. Cody. Yeah. No, really. I don't think one, yeah, I'd like to one day. Um, I think I, I've got some, some room to run first, but if yeah, I wrote I one, that. it would be... It would definitely be about this uh, this sort of contrarian idea about like you know you're the master of your universe and um, and I've always wanted to write one maybe as a former journalist that wasn't a self help book more of a book in the form of a of a novel so maybe people that would be kind of turned off by a self help book would would read this just for fun and not even realize it and learn a thing or two but you know one never knows I do think good for you on writing a few books because that is a tough, tough game. Yeah. And there'll be a third one for sure. Yeah. yeah I don't, Do you know what yet? Um, we're playing with some ideas right now. It'll, it'll be, it'll be 
almost certainly around this idea of following your different, you know, so the sort of the, the narrative in my head is the first one is for big E entrepreneurs. The second one was for small E entrepreneurs. The third one's going to be more personal. And I was blown away with both books, but in particular with um, Niche Down in terms of how it affected people personally. Play Bigger affected people professionally, profoundly, and somewhat personally. Niche Down was sort of 50-50, which was a surprise for me. I didn't think it would be so much personal. But I guess because small businesses feel personal to people, right? Um, And so here's the big irony. The big irony is we all want to be loved and accepted for what makes us uniquely us. And so the thing, the thing that's crazy as human beings is we want to be loved by what makes us different. And that's what makes us the same. And, and most of us, um, because we want to be accepted, we try to be the same when in point of fact is what people who love us truly love us for is what makes us unique and different. And that's actually what we want to be loved for. And yet we all try to be the same to fit in. And it's this weird fucked up dichotomy that causes a lot of pain and confusion. And so it's a big idea, right? And so this, this permission of uh, giving myself permission to be the different that I am but in a, but be responsible for my difference so that I can connect with people. So I'm not just a crazy weirdo, right? Um, uh, that's a powerful conversation. And the truth is, every person that you and I admire to a woman and a man is somebody who broke or took new ground, who in some way okay. was unique, who in some way... Uh, was a difference maker insofar as it used to be like this. And now it's fucking like that because they did something right. And that's true of every entrepreneur you love, every innovator, every creator, every artist, every political leader, social leader of, and so, but the irony is we're all still trying to fucking fit in. And so there's something to be done there for me. (laughs) Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Have you ever read, um, Rollo May, uh, Man's Search for Himself. Mm, uh, Victor no. Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, right? Yeah. And then Rollo May. So Rollo May is like, well, first of all, all my, all my favorite authors are dead, basically. And so he's, he's, a, a, he's a philosopher, I want to say like the 50s. Um, and he is a um, psychologist and philosopher. And he tells this one story about how in the book, and he just not only are the ideas in the book, I think, amazing and revolutionary of themselves, but he is a beautiful writer. So he sort of weaves together narrative in a way that even if he's explaining psychology to you, you're like, oh, that turn of phrase is just gorgeous. And so he um, talks about this bus driver and the bus driver was slowly going crazy. He was making the same loop in the same loop day after day after day. And one day, for some reason, he just lost it. And while driving the bus, like got everybody off the bus and just absconded with the bus and just kept driving until he was in Florida from New York or somewhere like that. And, um, and anyway, so of course the bus company comes after him. He's, you know, grand theft auto and, uh, and they bring him back and he essentially makes a statement saying, you know, I just couldn't do it anymore. 
I just saw this, the same day before me for eventual, you know, for, in, for eternity and perpetuity. And I couldn't do it. And what happens is people in New York freak out and they're like, you know, he's their champion. They're cheersing him. They're like, you know what? Good for you. Don't stay on the beaten path, whatever, whatever. So the bus company ends up giving him, uh, you know, waving all the charges and giving him his job back. But then he went back to being a bus driver. And so I just thought the whole thing was fascinating because it shows that we want to break out from these everyday norms and commutes that are sort of terrible. And we want other people to do it. And even if we get celebrated for doing it, it's so scary that sometimes we go back to it all over again. Hmm. The devil that we know, right? Yeah, exactly. um, Shit, I forget the name of the song, but there's a Dixie Chicks song where the lyric is, I'm longing for the comfort of my chains. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, whatever happened to them? They still around? Oh, they were such a great band for so long. Holy shit. They were. Yeah. Incredible songwriting, amazing harmonies. I mean, legendary band. And there's an amazing documentary uh, about them because when their lead singer, I forget her, her last name, her first name's Natalie. I don't know why I remember that. Anyway, when she on stage in, in the UK said some, something about, you know, they were embarrassed or ashamed, or I forget what word she used, that George W. was the president they lost like some giant percentage of their fan base. Oh yeah. And they had to rebuild the whole thing. And, and you know, there was death threats and I mean, it was, and there's an amazing documentary about it. And the, the, the record that came after that was produced by Rick Rubin, who is probably one of the greatest music producers of all time. And it's probably their greatest record. And it's got that single on it called, I'm not ready to make nice. Ah, yeah, which was a great song. A great song. The whole record is is a, is a mind blower. But anyway, yeah, I don't know. I, I think she went off to have kids, but I, I don't know for sure. I wish they'd come back. They were amazing. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, yeah, but I, I like women to take a risk and, and, you know, push outside of the norm. It's just, it is hard to do. And people, you know, the thing that I've realized, even in this cannabis venture, you know, I had a few of my mentors early on, um, say, you know, this is going to ruin your career, Cody. You, you have this kind of shiny resume up till now. You know, you're, you're young, you got a long trajectory. Um, and, you know, if you do this and it doesn't work out, this is going to be really bad for you. So I got a few of those. But then I had one of my mentors um, actually like sit me down and he was like, not only do you think, do I think you should do this, but I'm investing a sizable amount. So, um, like, let's get off to the races. And I had a few more experiences like that. But I, I imagine if I didn't have a few of those, um, I would not have taken the risk. Um, is it's, it's you know, the golden very piratey of you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what we do in the investing game, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm almost resident to sort of... I never know what to ask, but I'm going to ask anyway. Is there anything you want to touch on as it relates to women in business, women in venture, et cetera? Well, uh, you know, it's hard these days. Um, I'm a huge proponent for humans, both male and female, and everybody getting opportunity. Um, And I was, and, you know, am a big advocate for Latinas and women. I happen to be both of those things. So my last team was something like 80% women uh, and 100% minority, whether that's veteran or Latino or 
uh, of a different background. Um, and, and that was one, cause we were in Latin America, so it made sense. And two, um, you know, because I thought we should have more diversity at the firm, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because I want to understand my client base and my client base is increasingly representative of the nation. So it seemed to make sense to me as a business decision. The one thing that I don't love today that's tough for me is all of, like all of them, except maybe two people who are my best mentors, bosses, champions were men. And so, um, and I have a very strong relationship with my father, very strong relationship with, you know, my significant other and brother. And so I have these amazing men in my life. And, and so I do struggle a little bit with, um, the combating that I see today and sort of the, you know, rah, rah, female, we're better and who should run the world us and not that I don't think it should be an us and them. I think it should just be, Hey, let's all try to hire people that don't exactly look like us. And I bet things work out a little bit better. So I don't have something great there to say because, uh, I do think you have to be really careful, uh, in this day and age. It seems like if you speak out, you know, on one way or the other, um, you get into trouble, but you know, let's look at the data. Like I just was reading a, a report came out today and Cheryl Sandberg actually uh, was commenting on it about, um, the, the pushback that's happened from the Me Too movement. So, you know, it used to be 47% of men, um, in business would, would worry about taking on a female mentor or going to dinner or lunch one-on-one with a female. Now it's 60% have anxiety about, about doing that because they don't want to get labeled as sexual harassment. So I think we have to be really careful. And, you know, if, if somebody is doing something really wrong, um, I think we have to speak up for us and others. Uh, and on the same vein, I think we got to give a little love if people are just doing something silly or stupid or say something stupid, we have got to not absolutely crucify them. Um, and I don't think we're doing either of those very well these days. Yeah, it's like, it reminds me of that, um, wasn't it Rodney King who said, can we all just get along? A hundred percent. Yeah. You know, these guys who say like, I I wouldn't go uh, in a one-on-one meeting with a woman or, you know, uh, the other one is, would you go on a business trip with a woman? And I remember thinking about that. I've been on more business trips with women than I can ever count. And in some cases, just me and the gal for like yeah. a week on a press tour or something, yeah. right? And and I don't know. I never thought about it then. I don't know if I'd think about it differently today. I mean, maybe if I didn't know her, but if I knew her and we had a good working relationship, I wouldn't think about it for a nanosecond. Yeah, I agree. I haven't seen any change in my personal life regarding any of I mean, so I have, there's one other partner at the firm that's a woman, the rest of the four uh, people are dudes. Um, and they're amazing and huge champions for me. So yeah, I, I think maybe a little bit of this is just the news likes to stir up all of the negativity and, um, and focus upon that and maybe make it seem more intense than it actually is. Yeah. Amen. Hallelujah, sister. <laughs> Anything else you'd like to I touch still like on? You, Chris. Pardon yeah. me? I said, I still like you, even though you're a dude. <laughs> Hey, don't hold it against me. I'm just happy. I, it's not my fault. I'm a white dude. <laughs> I know. I do not. Um, no, I think, um, you know, I think the only other thing that's um, interesting to say is 
I like to get perspectives like yours on things like cannabis because you're kind of a contrarian. And so you're not the type to just immediately jump on bandwagons. So I enjoyed your podcast with Dennis. Um, and, and I like seeing more, you know, this podcast of yours has nothing to do with, with cannabis. So I like to see it mainstreaming and I continue to be amazed at that happening. Actually today, the UFC and uh, a big cannabis company, Aurora, just inked a deal together to do research on their UFC asset, uh, athletes with, um, with CBD. So I think wow. we're just going to continue to see incredibly varied partnerships, but we'll see. It could be certainly wrong. How interesting. I had not heard that. That's fascinating. Uh, I don't know a ton of UFC fighters, but I know a handful of them. And mm -hmm. my suspicion is that cannabis in one form or another is very popular with fighters. Yeah, I, be I believe suspicion. it too. <laughs> yeah. Well, I didn't realize they have sort of an opioid crisis uh, in UFC and fighters in general. I mean, it makes sense. You get, you know, really beat on and then afterwards have a lot of pain and you have to deal with inflammation. So they use a lot of opioids. Um, well, and think about this, and right? By definition, every knockout is a concussion. By mm. definition. Mm. And even a TKO, like even, you know, you don't have to go unconscious to have um, to have a concussion. I've had two concussions in my life, and in neither case did I go unconscious. And so, yeah, look, they get hit in the head for a living, man. <laughs> it's painful. Yeah, I agree. So anything we can do to, to remove some of the addiction, um, I think, from opioids would be a huge, huge win. And I think, you know, for people who are listening that want to get involved, um, we have an initiative called Texans for Veterans that I think is pretty amazing in doing research for vets uh, in regards to, to cannabis and eventually getting them access. Um, there are, I think, also really cool organizations to learn about cannabis. Uh, if you are into more learning in a fun way, there's Prohibited, which is one of our portfolio companies. It's really cool, like culture clash E. Um, um, media company, omni-channel uh, marketing company and brand. Um, and then, uh, I really think MJ biz does a great job. If you're interested in investing insight into cannabis, um, they do an amazing job. And then ArcView, which is, um, sort of like Y Combinator and AngelList combined for cannabis. Um, they're also doing interesting things for people who want to invest in smaller private deals. So there's lots of ways to get involved and, and learn. Very cool. Anything else yeah. before we kick out, Cody? Uh, I think that's it. I'm just excited to have caught up with you on an excuse to have inappropriate dinner conversations, which I think <laughs> podcasts are, right? <laughs> At least a little bit, especially this one. Well, yeah. I think you're awesome, Cody. You're, you're an inspiration. I, I, it's been really fun for me to see you over the last handful of years, just, um, you know, kick ass in your career. And uh, I think you're spectacular. And I just wish you a ton of success. Well, right back at you. Next time I'm in your neck of the woods, I'll have to bring you some, some fun stuff from some of the companies. Please come visit early and often. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I really want chickens. So as soon as that happens, I'm going to be harassing you. Yeah. Well, listen, we've learned a lot. It's been, uh, I think it's been, now been five years. Uh, right now we have eight hens. And uh, as you well know, they're the love of my life. I think they're adorable. Um, they're fun, they're funny, they're silly, they're smart. Uh, they're every bit as great as a dog or a cat and they make breakfast. Yeah, <laughs> that's brilliant. Yeah. That's exactly what I want. I think 
I, I just want some chickens and a goat. So I'm really returning back to, you know, like the hippie essence here. Yeah, it's really cool. And it really drives home this, this aha, which is the old expression, you, you are what you eat. But the truth is you are what you eat, eat. Yeah. Right. And so like when you get an egg from one of our girls, if you, if you like just have it sunny side up and you got the yolk and a piece of toast, you, you can't get the yolk off the plate because it's so thick and it's a color that no egg that you've ever bought at a store is like, it's just this vibrant color. And so, you know, when, when an animal is in a great environment and they're safe and they're happy and they're well-fed and so forth, they just, what they produce is just incredible. And uh, yeah, our girls are very happy. Our vet says when she comes back in her next life, she wants to be one of our hens. <laughs> <laughs> I believe that. We just had, um, they, get, they get this thing called, have you heard of this? They get broody. Have you heard this expression? No, no. So for some reason, nobody seems to know why um, a hen will think she's got a fertilized egg when she doesn't. And that's called going broody. And so she will sit on that egg uh, for the whole, you know, gestation period. I, I don't know exactly how long it is, but it's many days, maybe 15 days or 19 days or whatever it is. And so when you have a hen that's broody, you don't want her to do that because she's just going to sit in the hen house the whole time and they don't eat and they just get all focused on this, you know, because they think there's a baby coming. So you got to break them of being broody. And the, the way you do that is you take them out of their environment. You don't let her go in the hen house. Anyway, long story longer, Cody. I have for <laughs> the last uh, two and a half days, I have had our hen Penelope, a.k.a. Poo Poo, living in the house with me because I can't have her in the garden because she's, she, she went broody. And she's fucking sleeping in the bedroom with me and she's hanging out. And I yeah. said, I, I seriously, it's, it's just hysterical. I, I'll, I'll text you some of the photos of her. She likes to jump up. I have a photo of her this morning um, in the laundry room, jumped up onto the counter. Anyway, I was saying to my wife, Carrie, she's traveling right now. And I said, baby, how the fuck am I going to know when to put Poo Poo back out? Because I tried to put her out yesterday and she went right back into the nesting box. And I was like, oh, fuck. She's still fruity. And Carrie says to me, she'll tell you. And I swear to God, Cody, as crazy as this sounds, uh, I'm in um, the bathroom this morning brushing my teeth. It was about eight o'clock and I just, I just had breakfast and coffee. So I wanted to brush my teeth. Anyway, she walks alongside of the, the bathroom and she starts talking to me and she talks to me in a completely different uh, vocabulary than she has for the last couple of days. And it was very clear. She said, okay, I'm done. And I said to her, poo, you ready to go back outside? And she talked back to me and I swear to God, she was like, yeah, I'm ready. The bullshit's over. <laughs> I'm like, okay. I open the door and I walk her to the garden and she's been fine ever since. That's fascinating. It, it makes me a little sad because I eat a lot of chicken. So do you have to stop eating chicken when you have chickens? Look, you can do whatever you want. And I know I'm hypocritical because I eat other animals and other animals are awesome yeah. too. So I'm not trying to be preachy, but no, we, yeah. my wife and I can't eat chicken at all. It'd be like eating dog or cat. There's just no I, fucking I way. I think I'd I don't even, the same way. Candidly, I don't even like it when other people eat it around me. I try not to look at it. I can't think about it. It's terrible. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's what I think is going to happen to me too, but you can still eat the eggs. So that part doesn't feel weird. Well, yeah. And listen, they work really hard on making these eggs. Like, look, I respect anybody's choice, but like these sort of super ding dong vegetarians who are like, no, no, no animal products. It's like, well, 
a pasture-raised hen who's living a natural life makes an egg five times a week, plus or minus. She's just going to make those eggs. That's what she's going to do. And they work hard at it. They got to pull this giant thing out their butt five days a week, right? They, and they squawk like sh crazy after they do it, right? So it's like, if they're going to make these things, then we should eat them. They're amazing. <laughs> they taste great and they're good for you. That's such a good point. Well, now you've changed my mind on chicken. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in. Um, but yeah, so I'll, I'll harass you next time I have, I have chickens. We can have the chicken and cannabis show. Feel free. That, that Those are two of my favorite things, backyard chickens and <laughs> cannabis. <laughs> Thanks, this was Cody. such a pleasure, Chris. The pleasure's all mine. Really, I appreciate your time. Come back anytime. Will do. There she is, Dr. Cody Sanchez on the Oddcast. I sure hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Now, Mark Mader, the CEO of Smartsheet, says, quote, NetSuite was the only solution that could support significant growth. Natalie Riley, who's the VP of Finance and Operations at Topo Athletics, says, NetSuite is a robust all-in-one system that allows us to do everything we need to do to simplify and optimize our business. And the folks at Se Second City, yes, that Second City, the comedy troupe, turns out, they have a B2B enterprise business where they teach people how to do improv. And uh, they say, quote, we've had exponential growth without having to increase headcount. And we've been able to handle that with NetSuite. NetSuite wants to help you grow your business by knowing your numbers. They want to keep you on top of the seminal numbers that drive your business, that drive your business. And, uh, that's how NetSuite's become the number one company in cloud ERP, a complete business management system in the cloud. And they're offering you a free one-hour growth review with an expert in your industry. Check out netsuite.com slash different. netsuite.com slash different. And with NetSuite, you'll always know. All right. Uh, if you want to send us email, you can send us email to blackhole at lockhead.com and you can check out what my... Uh, a uh, 15-year-old nephew says is my weak social media game, unlike Cody's. Um, on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at Lockhead. Uh, most importantly, if you want to develop a direct relationship with us, the only way we know you're there is when you go to Lockhead.com and you subscribe to our newsletter. Even if you're subscribed on Apple or Stitcher or Player FM or Spotify, or whatever platform you love to listen on, um, we only know you're there when you go to lockhead.com and uh, sign up for our newsletter. And I'll tell you, we're going to only email you stuff we think is awesome, and we'll never, ever sell your email address to anybody. All right. We would like to thank the amazing Dr. Cody Sanchez. What an inspiring, insightful entrepreneur. Uh, play Bigger, how pirates, dreamers, and innovators create and dominate markets. Why not pick up a couple hundred copies today? Uh, growwire.com. This is where legendary growth-oriented entrepreneurial people hang out and uh, check out awesome stories of innovation. The amazing folks at Bottleneck Virtual Assistance helping you scale the most important thing we all have, which is time bottleneck.online. Check out the power of a virtual assistant today. And uh, do you, like me, live in beautiful Santa Cruz, California? Is it time to take your fitness to a whole other level and train like it matters? If it is, check out my friends at paradigmsport.com. Paradigmsport.com. And if you're a young person, 
looking to uh, kickstart your career, why not crash your career at crash.co slash different. And there you'll be able to check out a free preview of this new hand guide on how to jumpstart your career, crash your career, crash.co slash different. And a podcast I want to tell you about, I recently guested on, I love it. It's the Matt Brown Show. It's the number one podcast for entrepreneurs in South Africa. Matt's an inspiring guy running an inspiring company. Check out the Matt Brown Show podcast. All right, this podcast is uh, the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights do remain disturbed. We must warn you that clearly this podcast is created in a studio that does contain nuts. Uh, teach investments. Uh, enjoy quality time with Mary Jane. Don't be lame. Get out of the passing lane. Remember to listen to Blue Rodeo. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love your mom and dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? And today, our deepest apologies go out to Kim Kardashian. Sorry, Kimmy. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. It means the world to me that you're here. Thank you. Uh, stay legendary. And until we're together again, follow your difference.